Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month, our reviews include Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, Army of the Dead and The Father. That's quite a mixed bag of reviews. Before that, Graham will take over quiz duties this month. You getting the message yet, Jeff? Thank you, Trendsetter Neil. Now, listeners, <laughs> did you know Neil's been taking the knee for the last decade? <laughs> Nothing political in it. It's just him praying he'll make it round the golf course with a score no one will laugh at. That's sadly true. <laughs> Back to the show. Darren's dash this month includes oxygen, nobody and in the earth. Before we start, a shout out to our listener of the month. This month, to a person who would have beaten us all in last month's quiz. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for your support. No short movies this month. However, I hope there is at least one film amongst our reviews that you will like. And good luck with this month's quiz. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Well, cinema is back, isn't it great? But is it me or have you also noticed the average punter, i.e. the great unwashed, are getting worse in cinemas? It seems too much time spent at home in front of the TV and all cinema etiquette has gone down the toilet. Listen carefully, I'll say this only once. The cinema is not your home. I excuse you from that statement, Neil, as these days it might well be, and should be treated with respect. It is the church of the silver screen and should be looked on as such. And this rant is not just aimed at younger viewers. People even older than Graham, and yes, there are some, seem to think they can have a loud natter when Anthony Hopkins is forgetting everything on screen. Remember, you will be like that one day, possibly very soon. <laughs> then there's the other difference to movie watching masks now I know this is audio only so listeners you're going to have to trust me on this one I'm going to walk through the process of how to wear a mask properly <laughs> oh, unfortunately God. all of previous listener of the month's Frank's models ex-girlfriends are busy this month with college work so let me demonstrate how a mask should be worn on Neil a mask is meant to cover your mouth and nose I know that can be difficult given the size of Neil's nose. But even a normal size mask will cover it and his mouth. Just. This proves there is no excuse to leave the nose exposed. Then there are those who just cover the nose. And if you could see when I do this, Neil suddenly becomes a mouth breather. Okay, <laughs> put the you. mask back on, Neil. Bastard. Now take it off again while I demonstrate the last part. Finally, and worst of all, Put in the mask over your eyes. Don't wander off, Neil. You'll just walk into that wall. So there you go. Out to wear a mask. And if Neil can do it, so can all of you. And finally on this rant this month, oh, this God. one's aimed at cinemas. Please stop showing adverts that show why it's great to be back in the cinema. I'm in the bloody cinema. Why not put it on TV? Jeff stolen that from my WhatsApp chat to him. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the fact that when was the last time any of them went into a cinema? Yeah, exactly. Desperately, desperately trying to say something interesting about the cinema. 
Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. I agree with Jeff on this one. Please try to be quiet when in the cinema. Just imagine every film is like A Quiet Place Part 2. Oh, and whoever is doing it in our local cinema, stop hiding the booster seats. Jeff can't see the bottom of the screen. Hi, my name is Neil. Thank you for that demo, Jeff. Now I know how to wear a mask and I'll get rid of my exempt badge. I don't have it. What are you doing with my writing? <laughs> Hi, my name is Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes on my film blog, which is Phil the Bear blog at wordpress.com. I have to say I'm worried every time that I agree with Jeff. But also I was going to say, please keep your shoes on and your feet off the chairs in front of you and your phone away and talk about the film after it's finished. As for Mask Jeff, I seem to have permanently adopted the glasses wearing pinch the top of your nose to stop your specs misting <laughs> yes, up. That's a, that's a... Um, so any advice on that is welcome. Hi, I'm Darren, and if you want to know more about my wild, varied and weird movie tastes, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie. Or you can read my blogs at halfguarded.com. And if you read and enjoy any of them, please let me know because I really crave validation. As for the <laughs> as for the cleanliness of cinema goers, that's why I always go in the morning. The patrons may not be any more well kept, but there are less of them, and so I can keep the distance from them all. Over to you listeners. Is this just another silly rant from Jeff again, uh, inspired by Anthony Hopkins in The Father? Or do you agree with him that things have gotten worse? What about you, Emma? How are things at your cinema? Let's forget about Jeff for a while as we go on. (laughs) Let's forget about Jeff for a while as we go on with this month's quiz. I have the honour of being quiz master and taking one for the team by stopping Jeff's random questions. This month, we should be doing it to the music of Blankety Blank, another reflection on the tone of Jeff's quizzes. So, in the style of blankety blank, I will give you a question with a missing word or phrase, and you will have to fill in the blanks. So, for example, I will say that in the 1983 film Scarface, Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino, invites you to say hello to... To his little friend. Little friend. Which, oddly enough, is my t-shirt today. My little friend. Okay, right. So there are four blankety-blank style movie questions. Here we go. In a Wes Craven horror movie, The Last House on the Left, 1972, the marketing tagline was, to avoid fainting, keep breathing, blank. And remember, it's just a film. Yes, yes. Well done. And remember, it's only a movie, was the, the full thing. Yep. Have you ever seen the uncut version of that? Are you kidding? <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> okay, question number two. A favourite film of most people here. In Michael Mann's film Heat, Lieutenant Vincent Hanna, Al Pacino, describes the gang they are chasing as, drop of a hat, these guys will blank. Kill you? Disappear. Yeah, it's like rock and roll or something. Yes, well, well done. Don't me two down. 
Right, okay. So I hope my family are listening to this, and uh, especially my family in America, where I tried this out on them and they got zero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're two, two ahead. <laughs> right. In John Hughes's 1985 The Breakfast Club, assistant principal Richard Venon says, it's now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you are here and to ponder blank. Who I am. Your lifestyle. Nope. Your life choices. Mm, getting closer. The meaning of life. <laughs> Your existence. Nope. nope. Okay, number three. Goes to listeners. Over to you, Emma. <laughs> okay. Number four, and the final one. In the film Hidden Figures, at the beginning of the movie, Janelle Monet says, three Negro women are chasing a white police officer in Hampton, Virginia, 1961. Ladies, that there is a blank. Yay! Ooh. And Jeff, Jeff pulls well, it off at the end. Well done. Well done. The phrase is a God-ordained miracle, but I'll take miracle. Okay. And everybody gets a blankety blank checkbook and pen. Apart from Neil. Apart from me. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from Neil. I'm used to it. <laughs> and I've got one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Graham. A man with the same energy levels there as Harry Kane. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Still coming round to your house tomorrow to punch you. Right. <laughs> Emma, I'm sure you got all those answers anyway, even the one that we all missed. Let's start our reviews. This month begins with A Quiet Place Part 2. Quiet Place was a massive hit a couple of years ago. Now the sequel, its release delayed by COVID, has finally arrived. Starting with a prologue set the day the aliens arrive on Earth, part two then picks up its story just minutes after the first film ended. A word of warning here, if you haven't seen A Quiet Place, stop listening now, go <laughs> watch that excellent feature, and while you're at it, watch the sequel as well, then return for this review because it would be a bit daft, really, to watch the sequel without watching the first one first. <laughs> anyway, back to the plot. Even though Evelyn, played by Emily Blunt, and her family have learned how to defeat the aliens, their farm has been destroyed in the process. Daughter Regan, played by Millicent Simmons, identifies where there might be other survivors. The family set out into the world to find these people. However, everything out there has changed beyond all recognition and it's not only aliens who are a threat to this family. Phil, was there a lot to shout about with the first Quiet Place? Does the sequel also hit the high notes? Uh, very much so. I am. Um, mm. I loved the first film. It was going to be my favourite film of the year until Enter the Spider-Verse dropped in a couple of weeks before uh, Christmas. I was really looking forward to this one, and I had tickets for it all the way back in March 2020. Just obviously before the UK lockdown happened. So to take a nod from the film 
day 436 after I was supposed to see it. <laughs> I actually got to see it. And it, I, I loved everything about it. I thought it was really great. It was really worth the wait. We had a really good opening flashback that treats us to more John Krasinski. And who doesn't love that beard that he sports in these films? It's amazing. <laughs> There's a slight expansion to the world. And I quite liked that because it doesn't try to do too much. It doesn't try to like explode out and tell you lots and lots of things. It gives you a beginning to what happened and it shows you some other settlements and how some other people might be living. But there's also lots of really lovely touches that return to places and moments from the first film that I really appreciated. And it doesn't shoehorn them in either. They're, they're quite well done in terms of the way that they get to those points. It's got a really large scale action opener and then the rest of the film is quite tense with smaller moments. The acting is phenomenal. Millicent Simmons, she's just brilliant. She was brilliant in the first, and she gets a much bigger role here. Mm. Um, I've not actually seen her in anything else, so it'd be good to see her like in more because she's a really good actress. And just like with the first film, the soundscape is absolutely gorgeous. Watching it in the cinema was fantastic because everyone's holding the breath. You can hear people jump and scream and squirm. And there was one moment, I watched it with my wife, and she jumped at a moment, which I didn't jump at, but she jumped so big that I jumped at her jumping. It was quite funny. (laughs) And I thought the absolute cherry on the cake is right at the end of the film. It does some really great cross-cutting of multiple events that are happening in different locations. And the sound and the actual events are cross-cut really well. It's technically brilliant and it's dramatically perfect for what's happening. I loved every minute of it. Do you think that Emily Blunt had a lot less to do here than she did in the original? I think she does. I think they've purposely handed over the baton to the the children in this. So in the first film, it was all about the mother and father looking after the children. And this film was about children having learnt those lessons, overcoming their fears, and they're taking on the mantle of being able to go out into that world. It's almost like birds leaving the nest sort of situation. Neil? Well, I didn't see the first film, as you well know, Jeff, but I, I have heard a lot about it. You know, you do need a cursory knowledge of the original. I don't think you need to you see You reckon? It. Yes. <laughs> it's a coherent movie, and I, mm. I loved it. It was it was a couple of jump scares notwithstanding very enjoyable. Uh, the noise of the opening scenes, need for silence, and the relief on uh, Kitchillian Murphy's face when he hears people laughing, a fire crackling, people talking normally, really was well done. This was a real surprise, although I should have seen the original, I guess, when it came out, because it wasn't such a good film. Everybody seems to love it. The film concentrated much of its time, as Phil said, on the children. That worked really well. Millicent Simmons held her own with both stars, Emily Blunt and Chillian Murphy. I love the way Emily Blunt set her face from terrified to you shall not pass. Uh, <laughs> the story is a continuation point one has depth, and the character development worked really well. I, I Maybe because I didn't see the first one. It was tense, thrilling. They didn't fall back on jump scare, jump scare, jump scare, which would have been a, the easy way out. And the quietest of quiet moments with a monster close were really tense. Even in a cinema with only six people in it, it worked really well. It looked like the middle film of three in places, uh, and I'm reviewing it as such. I look forward to the third instalment. Really, I do. So are you going to go back and watch the first film? 
I might watch the first. It's on um, streaming at the moment. So. And Film 4 got it as well. Oh, right. I might do. I don't know. I know so much about it, though. That's the problem. Is it such fun when it's um, when you know everything that's going to happen? I've seen it multiple times. It's still brilliant. Graham. John Krasinski's managed to pull off a remarkable achievement in delivering such an excellent follow-up to the truly remarkable original Quiet Place. I mean, the opening scene was exceptional and scary as hell. Just like the last time, I was in a packed cinema with people and just like Phil said, people were jumping all around me. The thing that really pulled me into this follow-up is that it felt like a very natural extension of the first one. They weren't trying to do a huge reset or do anything clever. Just the baby's born, let's move forward. And the central family were still the focus of the film. There was a very clear quest and a new level of dread produced by the infant. In the first film, it was like the Fellowship of the Ring, and now the Fellowship is broken and they all go off on their separate quests. And I thought that was great. Although I did think it became a lot more creepy with, oh, God, what's happening to the mother? What's happening to the daughter? What's the boy doing? And as Phil said, the way they put it together at the end was just Mm. masterful. masterful. Yeah. I'm going to be boring and say, just like everyone else, I thought Melissa Simmons is as the clever daughter who figures out the puzzle was really, really good. And she pretty much carried the movie on her young shoulders. I really thought this was a fitting sequel to one of the best science fiction horror films of the last 10 years. I really enjoyed this, despite all the jump scares. And uh, The thing I hate about these bloody monsters is they can come at you from the ceiling. That's just like, that's yeah. not right. <laughs> that's not right, right at all, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> a, a listener to the show has contacted me to say that they almost walked out of this film because they have a phobia when anything happens to a baby. And, of course, when the baby's put into the box with the oxygen, it freaked her out so much she almost had to well, leave. That freaked me that, out, that, too. Yeah, exactly. And it's just <laughs> constantly building the level of, of dread. There's like three or four different threads going through, and they're all sort of reaching a crescendo at the same time. It was just excellently put together. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I was um, a little nervous when I heard a sequel was coming out because, to like you guys, I love the first one. With sequels, the tendency is that to make a follow-up, you've got to have a bigger and more threats. You have to mm. have more monsters and that sort of thing. They did really well because they basically didn't do that. I have this fear as well that they were going to, because at the end of the first one, we found a way to defeat the monsters, that we're suddenly going to become like these badass monster killers and we're basically going to be having, you know, <laughs> you know, knocking out the aliens yes. with, you know, you know one, one shotgun. Even though they now had the means on how to beat these aliens, they had to fight for every single little victory that they have. It was a struggle, but, you know, and, and I think that was really good. This really felt like a fluid continuation of the story. Towards the end, I did start to feel that the conclusion was starting to mirror how it was in the original. But it had a very subtle difference because, uh, like, like we've all said, it was the kids that basically grew into this film. At the start of the film, where you had the beginnings of the alien invasion, there was this really subtle reference to a young kid because he's trying to play baseball and he's not got the, the nerve, and he sort of, you know, the shots go past him. And in this one, he had to basically find the courage that he was lacking. And I like as well how subtle it was that it it just introduced you to a little bit more of what was going on on the outside 
world because you had the ones that what we assume were possibly cannibals who tried to uh, kidnap them that some people had sort of you know resorted back to sort of nature but you also saw them you know the people on the island who managed to carry on life as normal and it sort of re-emphasized that this is only like the early days of this sort of of this new world that's had to um you know adapt to this alien invasion but yeah i i, I really enjoyed it um, i think i enjoyed it just as much as as the original it probably wasn't as intense in some places like you know but nothing will ever beat the scene in the bath you know it's, it's one of the most you know intense and absolutely toe curling scary scenes that i've had in a cinema for a long time I, t- I tell you what actually what one little thing that popped into my mind when i was watching it and my wife completely wasn't interested when i told her after the film is that at the moment i think they're going to be making a um tv series of the famous game and um, the last of us i don't know if any of you have played it and there's yes. a lot of talk about casting and what have you but there's a couple of scenes where um killian murphy is walking along with Mill- millicent simmons and they've got like their guns on their shoulders and their backpacks on and their baseball caps on. And to me, it was just like, that's the perfect embodiment of like, you know, if you're going to put The Last of Us into a film, I thought it was really clever. Mm. Mm. Well, given the state of where humanity is at the moment, let's go watch a film about survivors of a global catastrophe going back out into the world to face new terrors. Perfect timing. <laughs> and yet this has been a massive hit. For me, and I, I, I hear what everybody's been saying, that they, they felt it was pretty much the equal to the original. I didn't think that. And I think part of the reason for that is having spent 10 years watching The Walking Dead, so much of what they encounter in the first half especially is just replacing zombies with aliens and, of course, dangerous human groups. Thankfully, Negan doesn't turn up. One of the most original aspects, though, of this film is the flashback prologue, which allows director John Krasinski back on screen. It's very tense and inspired me to come up with my own theory of why the aliens are here. Now, I've since read the filmmakers have a theory, but they're wrong. I'm right. So I'm willing (laughs) to talk to them and explain where they're wrong. Anyway, once that prologue is complete, that's when it comes into the Walking Dead bit. And to be honest, the rest of the first half is a bit boring. Now, the second half... What? What film did you see? (laughs) Quiet Place Part 2. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure? sorry. I'm not going to take this from two people that have never <laughs> seen an episode of The Walking Dead, so they wouldn't understand where I'm coming from. I have seen episodes of The Walking yeah. Dead. Have I've, you, Neil? I've yes. seen episodes with Did you, you fall asleep Jeff? and it was on when you woke up. <laughs> <laughs> no, deliberately. So let's go to the second half where I am in full agreement with you. The director builds suspense by cross-cutting with all his major characters in various stages of Jeopardy. And that works really well, as everybody has said. That said, one subplot, that of the boy looking after the baby, less so. I, I just think that one was thrown in, caught in that man trap. He's wandering around. Quite frankly, he deserved to be eaten. Um, <laughs> but the other subplots are very effective. Real edge of the seat stuff. And it's built through suspense and tension. Now, we've mentioned jump shocks. There are two in the film. One of them works really well, and I suspect that's the bit where um, your wife might have been jumping up there, Phil. Quite probably. Yeah, the other one, you could see it coming. It wasn't that effective. But the fact is, everything is built through tension, and I thought that was really good. Now, I'm not sure where this series is going, as ultimately the ending brings you back to the same exact ending as part one. And I think, really, to take it on, you do need now a major expansion of this world and these creatures, it's seriously required for part three. 
which is being planned because this has been such a massive hit. As I said, who'd have thought it in a pandemic? So to sum up, as horror sci-fi goes, this is really good. Just don't expect the same results as the first Quiet Place. Moving quietly on as we don't want to disturb the aliens or Jeff, <laughs> who's starting to snooze. Let's go to our only movie, which we couldn't see at the cinema, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. There's $200 million in the vault beneath the strip with a 32-hour window to get it out. Find the safe. This should be a simple in and out. They're not what you think they are. They're smarter. They're faster. They're organized. The best that you can hope for is to die. Oh, Shiza. What is this? It's a goddamn zombie tiger. That's crossing the line. You got no wind to hold. No wind to fold. Zack Snyder first made his name as a director with the remake of Dawn of the Dead back in 2004. With Army of the Dead, he returns to the zombie genre, although this time his tongue is firmly in his cheek, given the type of movie this is, I hope it's his. A traffic accident involving a military convoy unleashes a super zombie. This creature quickly turns his captors into the undead. This makeshift army shamble into Las Vegas, turning it into a zombie hell. Cut to years later, long after the city has been sealed off, trapping the creatures inside, mercenary soldier Scott Ward, played by Dave Batista, who was one of those responsible for the walling off of Las Vegas, has been given an offer he can't refuse. Go back into Vegas and retrieve a small fortune which had to be left behind. The catch? Scott and his team only have a small window for this mission, because after that the government plans to nuke both the city and the zombies off the face of the earth. Graham, is this another class act from the Zack, or just a reanimated idea? Well, I did think it was an excellent concept. I just think it was poorly executed. I, I mean, I liked the build-up. I liked the zombie escaping at the very start of the film. That opening scene was great. And then we get to the heist part of it. But I think at two hours and 28 minutes, this was just too long. The long runtime made it more of a slog than a quick get in, get out, and don't upset the zombies movie. Heist movies are meant to be all about pace, you know, baby driver, Ronin, Dog Day Afternoon, or even the wonderful Lavender Hill mob. I find the pacing very poor. I also thought the cast and crew were not great. I thought the performances in general were quite poor. But Dave Padista, I mean, I love the guy. And Ella Purnell, his daughter, really terrible. The emotional bond between the two of them reminded me of Jeff and Neil. I mean, the German <laughs> character was annoying. The Bishop character from Alien, uh, Martin, played by Garrett Dilha Hunt, was so bad he was constantly jarring. I mean, he was just unbelievable. Um, the only two characters I really did like uh, were Nora Anna Zeder as Lily and Omari Hardwick as Verhoeven. Tegan Natara, uh, Starship Engineer was reduced to a CGI inserted helicopter pilot, and she was fun and engaging. 
for someone who wasn't really there. I mean, the fact that she was flying a Vietnam-era helicopter, I just wanted to shout at the TV, you weren't there, man! The, uh, the special effects were the star of the show for me. Made up for the lack of drama in the film. I thought the CGI tiger and horse were excellent, and the tiger in particular was very menacing. In summary, too long, poorly acted, not that scary. Zack Snyder can do so much better than this. I really think that he was coming off the back of his fight with Warner Brothers to finish the version of Justice League and his own personal family tragedy, and his head wasn't fully in the game. I also wonder how much the replacement of Chris Diella by Tig Notaro cost him in time in the editing room. This movie feels like it was rushed, and that rush may have been caused by that replacement. I loved the idea. I thought it was really, really fun. Great idea. The action scenes were really good, but I just think they didn't get enough time to work with the actors. I just don't know what was wrong with it. So um, why are you prejudiced against Germans? Find them all annoying? I found him annoying. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant all yeah, Germans. No, they oh, have just Jesus comedy and comedy German guy. Yeah, Darren, I love Las Vegas, and it's such a fun place, an over the top place. And and I actually once once was holiday. I was talking to a friend of mine about doing a zombie movie in Las Vegas, because there's so many crazy scenarios you can have. You could have Cirque du Soleil acrobats fighting zombies. You could have UFC fighters um, becoming zombies or fighting zombies. There's so many places in there which will look great with, with zombies around. I mean, it will just be such a fun movie. And the problem with this is, apart from the opening scenes when we see the fall of Las Vegas, which some of them are quite good and funny, by setting it after all this has happened, it just becomes another city. With, with some different um, architecture, just a ruined city. The only thing that they really did that tied it into Vegas, really, was the um, the Siegfried and, uh, and Roy Tiger and uh, and the fights amongst the, uh, the, the slot machines. It could have been basically any other city. I did enjoy the, the whole thing of um, recruiting the team, colourful, comic booky-type characters. I really liked Lily. The French girl, I thought, I thought she had, a, you know, she had a real lot of screen presence. I really liked Tig Notaro, and it wasn't until after that I found out that she basically did all her scenes completely on her own. The bit where they introduced the guy who was obviously the, who was the, the inside man, he might as well have just had a T-shirt on that just said, I'm the one that betrays you at the end. Because it was it was so obvious. And the fact is as well, he was the Burke character from Aliens. And I sort of realised this film was basically almost at times plot beat for beat a remake of Aliens. You had the um, the insider character whose mission who had decided mission that he wanted to bring uh, one of the zombies back out there. You had the sort of the ragtag um, you know, team and some of the shots later on. Especially like me on the bit where they get to the roof and they find the helicopter's gone and then they face the zombie and then the helicopter comes back. It was just like the end of Aliens. The amount of pop culture references to Star Wars and things like that, it just felt really tacky and and cheesy at times. And when they did get into Vegas, it just became a boring video game movie. And it just went on and on and on. I was really disappointed with this. Because Zack Snyder was involved and because I really enjoyed Dawn of the Dead which I think sort of was a throwback to the old sort of grindhousey type Romero um, uh, zombie movies I was expecting something good in this and it didn't even look good it was sort of it's like a lot of films that end up on Netflix it had that clear video type quality to it I, I like Dave Matista 
I wish he would speak up because he, he practically mumbles through uh, movies and, and, and whispers, and it's just oh, I, I just think this was a really lost opportunity for for what could have been a really fun movie. Okay, thank you, Darren. So at the beginning of the year, at the Flicks, give the award for the actor we didn't want to see on screen this year to Dave Batista. I've nothing against Dave, personally. I mean, it's Graham. It doesn't like him, and you could tell that from what he was saying. <laughs> Another lie. Uh, and that's why we tried to send the award with Neil to hand to Dave, but uh, for some reason he wouldn't do it either. Anyway, the at the flicks problem is he's not a lead actor. Both Graham and Darren have picked up on this. He's great in a carefully directed supporting role, such as Guardians of the Galaxy. Here, unfortunately, he's front and centre. So when the storyline pivots into an emotional range at the finale, he's just not up to it. Even the great Zack cannot get that performance out of him. And that's a shame, as otherwise this is a wonderfully fun combination of a zombie movie with a heist plot. In fact, the heist turns out to be something of a MacGuffin. But that doesn't matter at all, as all the tropes are putting the gang together for a perfect plan. It's all here, and of course it all goes wrong. And then you combine that with a huge number of movie references. Darren mentioned Alien there. Oh, Alien, sorry. And you should have a blast. And forget George Romero. There's more of a nod towards Return of the Living Dead. And that combined with such John Carpenter classics as Escape from New York and Ghosts of Mars. And particularly Ghosts of Mars. And it frustrated the hell out of me watching this film. But I couldn't place where those zombies were from. And of course it was from that. But back to the movie references. You can also spot Raiders of the Lost Ark in there. The Walking Dead. That's two films tonight. And even the classic Twilight Zone episode. Time Enough at Last is referenced here. Now admittedly. Even though it's great fun. Things do start to fall apart towards the end. Like an overripe zombie. And it too obviously leaves it open for a sequel. However, Zack Snyder keeps up the interest mostly throughout in a two and a half hour film. The opening credits, which I think we've really mentioned yet. Oh, uh, great. They are not to be missed. They are absolutely brilliant. So I guess you could say that, you know, if there's a social commentary, Las Vegas has returned to its lawless beginnings. But I don't think that was intended in this fun comic movie. Zack Snyder's returned with a vengeance this year, and I, for one, can't wait to see what he does next. Just please don't hire Dave Batista. Graham said so. <laughs> That's not true. So Dave Batista, I like, as everybody said, but not as a lead. Otherwise, the film plays out as a standard action over the same action movie cliches and an ending so open it begs a sequel, hopefully not. As always, <laughs> there are plot holes. Why does the owner of a casino need the group to break into the vault if he owns it, for example? <laughs> And then I watched an interesting YouTube video. Are they all stuck in a time loop? Bear with me. When they get to the vault, there are bodies of people who tried before. Same as accessories as the group. And three guns exactly the same as the one Ralph Castillo uses. One character even suggests this. Or did Mr. Snyder film it and decide to abandon the idea that it would at least explain why this film is so average sure there are enjoyable moments but so many cliches do characters stop for deep conversations when the clock's ticking yes do the guns fire for ages and then all run out at the same time etc etc there are some really good zombie films and this isn't one of them i'm afraid okay name one that is now uh sean of the dead <laughs> <laughs> right okay phil 
So I think you put me at the end because I'm the only one who actually liked this. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. So Hang on a minute. Oh, hang on. I liked it. I just said oh, yeah, it you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Oh. Okay. So, yeah, I think I liked it more than most of you, though. So, oh, well, anyway, so... Jeff mentioned this, the absolute best bit is right at the front, the opening credits, that kind of does the whole, what Darren said about the whole kind of Vegas story that he would have liked to have seen. He kind of does it as an opening credit sequence and it matches the brilliant effort that Snyder does with the opening credits and Watchmen. I really liked that. I thought it had some really interesting visuals. You'd expect that of Zack Snyder. And I think he came up with some really fun ideas with the zombies because you had like the alphas and the shamblers and the, the animals. You've all mentioned lots of films that it's like in terms of plot, but the films it reminded me of was more about because it's how they made me feel. And that's like the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Suicide Squad films where you've got this disparate group of characters who don't necessarily like each other and and like they're cool and it's fun and they're mostly expendable. So you can kind of guess which one's going to go first and all that sort of thing. Um, and I thought the the action scenes were really good, really intense and fun. And there's lots of comedy in there. So I'm a little surprised at um, the negativity. I, but it does kind of feel from when I've spoken to other people, this feels like a Marmite film. You either do like it a lot or, or dislike it a lot. Or, you know, maybe Jeff somewhere in the middle. To Neil's point about bizarre plot moments, did anybody see... There were some zombies that when they got shot, they looked like they were robots, like they kind of had like an electrical crackle and stuff. And you had like the time loop stuff as well. So I didn't, I don't know, is is Snyder like so aware of his obsessive fan base that if he puts in little things like that, he he knows that they'll go away and run with it kind of thing. And and the last thing I'd say is I really like uh, Dave Bautista. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. Um, not as lead man. No, I thought I thought he did really well as an action lead. And but I, the one thing I agree with you all on, and I actually I blame Zack Snyder for this as much as you know Batista for this. He cannot do those terrible heart to hearts. Like in the last half an hour of the film, he has a heart to heart with almost everybody <laughs> still alive in his squad. Neil just mentioned it. It's a bit frustrating because you're like what are you doing? Get out. Um, <laughs> but also, it's also kind of one of those things that's like, they're dead then, aren't they? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and there was one where it was literally that second as well. And I didn't like the inevitable um, horror film ending, which, you know, you've you've got to have it, haven't you? Because you've got to keep the doors open for sequels and all the rest of it these days. But, but generally speaking... I think it's a really fun heist movie with some good action in it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Phil. So Army of the Dead, not vintage, Zach, and certainly split this panel. It can be found on Netflix. Now, before we move on, there's some breaking news. And I'm hoping that this is still going to be breaking news when this uh, show comes to air. It appears that Liam Neeson has been cast in a major role in Aquaman 2. Well, Yep, apparently... His tagline's going to be, I've got a particular set of gills. I thought you were going to announce that he died then. I was bloody having a heart attack. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) That's what I thought. Jesus. When you start stressing out, you see somebody trembling. (laughs) Let's move on to Anthony Hopkins' Oscar-winning performance in The Father. Date of birth? 
Friday, 31st of December, 1937. You're living with your daughter at the moment? Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. <laughs> Paris. They don't even speak English there. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat, isn't it? Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, is an old man with dementia. He lives alone in his flat, cared for by his daughter Anne, Olivia Coleman, and a series of carers, all of whom ultimately leave him because of his attitude. Anne explains to her dad that because of her personal circumstances changing, she will not be able to visit him often in the future. It is either a carer or an alternative they do not want to talk about. The problem is Anthony's dementia is getting worse. Events start to blur with memories as we see life from Anthony's perspective. This happens to the extent that we, the viewer, question what we are watching, what's real, what's imagined, and why is it all so disorientating. The father is an attempt to put us into the mind of a dementia sufferer. Neil, does this approach work for you? Absolutely. At the start, we meet Anthony, renamed by director Florian Zeller from his own stage play in honour of the lead, Sir Anthony Hopkins. He's in his flat listening to Purcell's King Arthur Act 3 and the chilling lines, What power art thou who from below hast made me rise unwillingly and slow from beds of everlasting snow? I had to look that one up. I found this one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen. This, the set is basic, almost stage-like and deliberately so. Anthony's bedroom is at one end of a corridor of which, off which there are several rooms, a front door and the end a kitchen. And we're seeing it through his mind, which took me a whole first act to realise, I'm afraid. And it keeps changing, as do the actresses. Two actresses named Olivia was a nice touch. Anthony's mind is crumbling. I found the dissonance of the music, the set changes, Anthony's attitude to people really difficult. As the cast are travelling through time in a straight line, Anthony is doing everything but, and it's very difficult to follow. We're experiencing dementia. When at the end he says, I feel as if I'm losing all my leaves, I cried with him. The ending is desperately sad. I'd planned to watch Peter Rabbit 2 after this film, but I just walked home. The film would not have been made if Anthony Hopkins had not agreed to do it, and his performance was every bit of deserving of the Oscar. He reputedly took much from his TV version of King Lear a few years back, and there are similarities between the two. Hopkins was roundly criticised for that performance, however. He didn't make the same mistake twice. One of the best films of the year, if not the best. Yeah, I agree with you, Neil. It does touch on um, horror movie tropes uh, in uh, more than one place in that mm. film. Mm. Yeah. It is yeah. A, a proper horror movie. Phil? As I was watching it, I approached it like it was a puzzle to be solved. And for quite a long time, I was attempting to piece together the sequence of events and the people in them as they, they mixed and matched and swapped. But as it unfolded, I realised 
that this isn't something that you could solve. And it kind of actually did bring me back to the relationships that I've witnessed in regard to dementia. So um, a couple of people on my wife's side of the family have had dementia. And actually, when I kind of accepted that I couldn't solve that puzzle because it was representing you know that their mind was you know lost and that they couldn't themselves piece it together I kind of realized at that point just how good it was it really makes you emphasize with Anthony and with Anne his daughter as they both face really impossibly scary and distressing truth and its final moments are just truly heartbreaking it's an incredibly well-constructed view into dementia and the impact that it has. It's told mostly from the perspective of Anthony, the, you know, the ultimate unreliable narrator. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, it jumbles people, places, events and times. One of the things I probably bang on about a lot on this show when we talk about plays that have been turned into films is are they cinematic or is it just the play recorded into a film? And I think that this one is really brilliantly cinematic. And actually, I, I mean, I've not seen the play. I would love to, but I kind of felt that there were things that the film did that I'm not sure the play could possibly do because what it does is it repeats scenes and frames of images in different rooms with different characters. From the um, the reviews I've heard, some of the, the from the play, the problem with the play that it doesn't have Anthony Hopkins in the lead, <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah, well, the, the way that it kind of you have the same scene but in a different room, but it's framed exactly the same way. And maybe the characters or the actors, not necessarily the characters, but the actors change. It's just really brilliant at summing up the confusion that the lead is, is facing. And you mentioned Anthony Hopkins obviously giving a great uh, performance, but i um, uh, forgotten her first name. Olivia, Olivia Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. yeah. She's also brilliant. Yeah. And Olivia Williams has a small part as well, and she's she's got a really um, important scene at the end of the film. I do think it would be a really hard watch for people who've had a personal experience of dementia, um, but I also think it's a really poignant and beautiful film. Graham? I was absolutely bowled over by this. A brilliant portrayal of dementia. I mean, as somebody with a member of our family currently living with dementia, this film was so accurate and so relatable. Uh, from the opening scene about the stolen watch and the endless confusion right through to the wandering about it at night. It was just spot on. And I think the masterstroke of the writer-director, Florian Zeller, is that he draws us into Hopkins' world and we see that world through his eyes, eventually becoming as confused as he is. It's a work of genius. And Hopkins is at his best as the confused father only able to see and understand the world through his own diseased brain. It's, oh, it, I was in floods of tears mm. at the end yeah. when he wanted his mother to come and take him home. Oh, God, yes. idea. it was phenomenal. And I loved the reference to leaves. All my leaves have blown away. Yeah. That was just great. I'm grateful. Really, I'm grateful that these films are being made to give a level of understanding, but it, God, it's a hard watch. Yeah. It's a hard, hard watch. So what do you think that ending means when the camera pans out looking at a tree? I just think that that's, there's all the leaves in the world and he hasn't got any. 
Yeah. You know. uh, the other thing I thought about was it's, it's like just watching his mind crumble in front of you. It's just crumbling away. It's the constant switching of faces, which reminds me of uh, Bojack Horseman does a episode on dementia. Uh, and because it's a cartoon, some of the faces of the people are scribbled out because the, the person with dementia doesn't can't do any f- uh, recognition of faces. And they did that so well. So Olivia Coleman is always on. But then sometimes Olivia William, Williams is Anne and Laura and Catherine. And then Imogen yeah. Pooch comes in and she's another Laura. I just thought that the way they did that was brilliant. Very clever, yeah. And the way they have that chicken meal about 10 times as well. Yes. But it was just the one meal. Yeah. Yeah. And the corridors, the way they used the corridors and the framing was, was almost Kubrick-like. It was just great. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I'll be honest. I had problems sitting through this movie. Uh, it's mainly because of what I brought to it from my own personal experience, having had family members who suffer from dementia, and also have family members who are basically just going through old age and all the issues that, that come with that. And so there were lots of things for me. I, I wouldn't use the word triggered, but it felt like I was going across some old ground. For me, and so I wasn't getting a, a lot out of it emotionally. Um, I mean, I, I the, the, the there's two sides for me watching this: my emotional connection or lack of it, but also the fact that I, I recognise what a great job this movie did of basically confusing the viewer by using the uh, the different actors in the same role and having them go over the same thing. I mean, I think there's one really um, clever sequence where it starts off where they're at a meal and the scene actually goes a full circle so that you end up right at the start of the meal again. And it's almost seamless, but it, it portrays the confusion that, that, that someone with dementia is is going through. And I think it, it did all these things really well, just for little things like changing the furniture subtly, changing what the, the room looked like. I mean, at times it almost felt like a Hitchcock thriller because it was quite a, a mm. mystery. You, you didn't, yeah. you know, you weren't quite sure who to trust. You weren't quite sure if he was being abused or if this was in his memory or if they were messing with him. You, you know, the, the, there was a really clever thing there. It was something that I was, I found out I admired more than actual sort of like and wanted to to watch this film. I mean, the performers of Olivia Coleman, I think she was really overlooked because she gave the emotional performance of somebody watching someone she loved disappear before her eyes. And just the little thing of always having to basically be calm and patient. And you could see, you could see, just see it in her eyes with the upset that she was going through without breaking down. I thought she was really clever. The Anthony Hopkins performance was a curious one because it was great, but it was a very dramatic performance using Alzheimer's to create a dramatic performance. It wasn't... Yeah, it was over through several months, wasn't it? So they were only filming bits from over several yeah, months, weren't they? It didn't feel authentic to me of what I've seen dementia do to people. It it, it was like pretty much like Anthony Hopkins... Um, portrayal of Annabelle Lecter. It wasn't an authentic portrayal of what serial killers are like. It was a brilliant performance, a dramatic performance, but I didn't find it realistic. It was using dementia to basically do a dramatic story, as such, if, if any of that makes sense. The main thing 
that I, I had a problem with this film and I found really hard to, to sit through as, as much as I thought it was good and, and deserves all, all the plaudits, is that this film was entirely about dementia. But there was there was nothing else in it. I, I, I found myself thinking about the film with um, Liam Nielsen, the uh, Ordinary Marriage. It's his wife in that gets cancer, and it's a, a film about suffering from cancer. But it's also a love story, and also there's sort of some like sort of variation to the, the way that the couple deal with cancer. Whereas this was just felt totally about dementia. And then if anyone who, who knows this, there's no coming back from this. So you, you knew that this was basically could only end in one way. So so I, I, as much as I admired it and I thought it was clever, confusing you as an audience to sort of recreate what that would like, I, 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 I understood all that. It's a film that people should maybe be wary of, of seeing. If you have, you know, if you have lived through any of that, of of that situation, it, you know, you might find it really hard going. But it's a great it's a great film, you know. I personally just um, could have done without it, frankly. Thank you, Darren. That's a fairly heartfelt review, to be quite honest. The father, or as I like to think of it, Harold Pinter crossed with Christopher Nolan. Most of what, what else I'm going to say is just going to be a reiteration of what others have said. It aims to put the viewer in the mind of a dementia sufferer with structured disorientation. And unsurprisingly, as everybody has said, it is a hard watch. Mm. Having seen it once, I ain't going to be rushing back to watch it again. Oddly, compared to some of the other comments, I didn't find it an emotional experience. But I did have an increasing sense of dread as the film went on. And it, in that way, it's not unlike a horror movie, which in many ways it does resemble. Now, if you take something like Roman Polanski's Repulsion, it's very similar to this film and has some of the similar themes. Mm-hmm. Now, I do a part-time job, and in my job I see many people suffering like this. The personality changes, the anger, and particular, the fear are all captured here. And it is captured really, really well. And again, I stress, as everybody has said, this is a hard watch. And think carefully before watching it. So, so back to the film. Anthony Hopkins is astonishing and well-deserving of his Oscar. I would accept I haven't seen... The Ma Rainey film everybody's talking about, not through anything other than I've just had no time to watch it. But I find it difficult to believe that Hopkins could be beaten for the performance like this. But I'll give it a go. His final scene alone is Oscar worthy. And I think that's a scene which has been mentioned again by others. And it'll stay with me a long time. As for the other performances, Olivia Colman, again mentioned. I don't think we've given enough love here to Olivia Williams. She's never had the career she deserves. She's excellent. And I think Rufus Sewell does well in a part that's not sympathetic, but looking at it coldly, it's understandable. You know, and anybody who says, well, it isn't acceptable what he did, I think that's true. But you have to confront that ongoing situation. Interestingly, it's based on a stage play. And again, that's been said earlier. Though it really steps outside of its set, I would go back to what Phil said, it didn't feel like a play, although it has real moments of claustrophobia. And I think that's part of the mind games it plays with its structure, like Christopher Hampton's excellent and Oscar-winning interpretation. And this is a fascinating contrast. Phil, you asked about the stage play earlier, and what they did on the stage play is you had a full, well-lit set to start off with, 
And as mine closes down, they start darkening corners of the stage and they start removing props. So in the end, it's just him sitting there. So, uh, as, oh, that's yeah, clever. That is yeah, clever. It is yeah. good. Thanks. Uh, so as a film, and this is what Darren said, and I agree with 100%, it's a film to be admired, but you can't like it. No, no. And it puts, for me, it puts it in the bracket with such films as Raging Bull, another film I admire, but I don't particularly like it. No, indeed. So wh- one final note, and I said earlier, and I mentioned Repulsion, that this has the feelings of a horror film. And there's one that comes very close to this, and it's a film called Ghost Stories. And if you haven't seen that movie, check it out and compare it to The Father. I think you'll find there's a lot of interesting similarities as it plays through. That's our thoughts on the Oscar-winning film The Father, which, as we said, won an Oscar for its Welsh star. Let's stay Welsh with our next feature, Dream Horse. I need something to look forward to when I get up in the morning. I'm going to breed a racehorse. Absolute madness. It's normally wealthy professionals who are going for this kind of thing. There's ways of doing these things, isn't there? 20 people in the village put in a tenner a week for two years. When the horse is born, everyone will be owners. We'll all have an equal share. (laughs) It's a tenner every week, Kirby, you pillock. Oh, God, he's gorgeous, isn't he? He needs a name. What about Dream Alliance? Is our dream, and we're all in it together, so Dream Alliance. Dream Alliance! Dream Alliance! He's pretty rough around the edges. Lost our jobs, our community, even our pride. And then Dream came along and reminded us what life is like when you are old. Let me guess, you picked the films, Jeff. Of course. Dream Horse is the true story of racehorse Dream Alliance. This is, however, no ordinary sports story. Janet Folkes, played by Tony Collette, is a middle-aged resident of the South Wales Valleys. Worn down by a marriage gone stale and a community that is without hope, is that where you used to live, Jeff? (laughs) Jan is desperate for something to give her a spark again. A chance encounter with tax advisor and former racehorse owner Howard Davis, played by Damien Lewis, gives Jan the idea of breeding a champion racehorse. For this crazy idea to work, Jan and Howard set up a syndicate within the community for the upkeep and training of the horse. The world of horse racing is about to get a big shock. The valleys are coming. The story of Dream Alliance has previously been told in the award-winning documentary Dark Horse. Does turning the story into a drama add anything? Jeff? It certainly does, Neil. We spoke in The Father about, and I felt I didn't find it emotional. Well, this is completely different. There are very few times where one wants to stand and applaud a film in the cinema. Dream Horse is one of those rare times. In fact, If there was an Oscar for the best karaoke soundtrack to a film, this would easily win it. The West National Anthem, sung by no less than Dame Catherine Jenkins, Bread of Heaven, and a fantastic final sing-along for Delilah, which Gestapo Graham and Woke Neil would love to ban. What are you you on about? You're not going to start singing, are you? That I would ban. (laughs) I hear you say out there, you know, in this discussion, and ignoring Neil, Jeff, that sounds amazing, but is the film any good? Oh, yes. Those of you that have seen the amazing documentary Dark Horse will already know this story. But in Dream Horse, 
it has been turned into a memorable, emotional, uplifting, classic movie. Did I mention there's a Welsh connection here? And indeed, a small family connection. I'll talk about that offline. So why, if this story's been told in a documentary, does it work so well here? Because drama can do more to explore characters and their motivation. Casting is also key. The two leads are actors who can chew the scenery with the best of them. But Tony Collette and Damon Lewis rein it in and produce some of their best work in years. Yet it is Owen Teal who mm. almost steals the film by turning a cliche role into a heartfelt study of dreams and lives lost and how to regain that belief in yourself again. I hope you took note of that, Neil. <laughs> in themes, it reinforces the prejudice angle from the documentary the prejudice that humble yet inspiring Welsh people have to face day to day from the English. <laughs> the one aspect of this story I was hoping they would cover was the prejudice they had to endure at Cheltenham Racecourse, which is why I never go there. What prejudice? And watch the documentary, Neil. It's all there on screen. Even you, as an English xenophobe, will be shocked. <laughs> oh, shut up. Don't forget, we're dealing with Welsh people, and Dream Horse dramatically shows them rising above all this and how pride and belief in themselves rises again, like the football team. In short, yeah. monumental tale of drive and ambition, and most importantly, being Welsh. Just see it. <laughs> Darren, over to you. Follow okay. that if you can. <laughs> Barking mad. Okay, so for for me, the, the story of Dreamos is the plot is pretty much by the numbers. You can you can set you you watch by it. You could be watching Full Monty, you could be watching Calendar Girls, Brastoff, Military Wives. It's the same old story where you have people from a um, a working class background. They come up with an idea. There's a bit of a stumble at the start. They get some success, but that threatens to pull them all apart. And it all seems to fall apart, but then they rouse up at the end for a big finale with a triumphant feel-good ending. And it's always the same in these films. It was beat for beat. But the thing is, it works. If you've got the right characters and the right storyline, it works because you can't help but be rooting for these people. Films like this always work. They, they leave you with a smile on your face. And if you're an old softy like me, normally with some tears in your eyes as work. And and this one, it's, it's just another great example of this sort of your working class hero come good storyline. Because you're rooting for everybody involved. You want, you know, you like these characters, you know, you, you laugh with them, but you want them to do well. And in the end, you know, in this sort of film, that they're going to win the big race. But that doesn't mean that you're still not completely tense. You're not on the edge of your seat, like as if you were watching a, a Rocky movie. Tony Collette, who basically, for me, she can't do anything wrong these days. The amount of films that she's in where she's just so totally fantastic. The, you know, the affection that she has for this horse, particularly in the scenes where the syndicate are considering that they might want to uh, cut the losses and sell the, the horse. And, and very valid views. But you sort of side with her because she, sort of, she sees something more in what they're doing than, than just a money-making scheme. This is like, this is a film about hopes and dreams and you know, proving that you are sort of good at something. It's all about working class pride and it's the, the typical, you know, the battle against the, uh, the the snobs, you know, the ones who sort of look down on them and try to make them feel like they don't belong for because they've come up above their station. But this one was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it was just such a, you know, 
of all the films that we sort of seen when we have the probably the most depressing um, slate of um, Oscar movies lately, to have a film like this where you just everyone walking out here had a laugh, had a smile on their face. I, I really think that this is a sort of movie that you know is really worthwhile going to see right now. Wonderful film. Bloody Welsh people with their ideas above their station. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing coming out of the valleys? No, seriously, this was a great little film. I really enjoy it. Sense of community pulling together. Everything Darren said, you know, it's a, it might be a well-worn trope, but this took it to another level. I thought it was, you know, they overcame the adversity. It was so well-constructed. Yes, it was a little formulaic, but enjoyable. Here we go again. Tony Collette was at the top of her form. Damien Lewis, whose character went in a direction I had not expected, ever the quiet man in the background. Brian, played by Owen Teal, was exceptional. I love that. Great little movie, which leaves us with one important question. All the Welsh people in this movie seem relatable and pleasant. How come we ended up with you, Jeff? <laughs> Nobody more pleasant than me. I can't <laughs> really. Yeah. Did yeah. I miss that? Yeah, in, you might in, have done. In the twenty oh. years I've known you, I must have missed that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, I, I'm probably going to be um, repeating what, what everyone said. So it's it's a sports movie that just pulls all the right heartstrings. It covers pretty much every sports trope. Darren said that. You know, they're the underdogs. They go from rags to riches. They win over the rich element that normally win and they turn their noses up at them. There's a miraculous recovery, fulfills their lifelong dreams. But Darren said it already, they do it perfectly. And you laugh, you cry, and you root for them to win. We mentioned Toni Collette. She's amazing in this. Owen Till, I thought, was great fun as well, especially when he's watching the telly and complaining about how they weren't as good a vet as I assume he used to be. (laughs) The one thing you haven't said, and this is probably particular to me because I think horse racing is one of the dullest sports ever. I've watched like every sport and horse racing just is the one that I just cannot do. I thought that the photography and the editing of the racing made horse racing dead exciting. (laughs) Drones, isn't it? I I was looking at it going... Yeah, this is really, and it was, everyone was a drone shot. And I thought, that's how you do it. You can see what's going on from above. Yeah, you know, and, and it made the um, the jumps that the horses yes. do look really scary as well. Mm. And you're holding your breath as they're going over those um, those jumps. So I thought that that was you know, really clever, really good. But the camaraderie between the syndicate was great. And I cannot believe that Jeff, when he mentioned all those songs, didn't mention Manic Street Preachers, because that bit for me, I guess maybe some of a certain age, but the Manic Street Preachers for me was the greatest moment in the film. It's like everyone else said, it's really, really fun. And you will come out of that film with a big smile on your face and you would have really enjoyed yourself. One of the most heart-stopping moments in that film was when they uh, they disappeared from view for a second and mm. then their Dream Alliance didn't come out the other side and because it had fallen at the, at the fence. And then that moment when they put the screens round it. But my heart was absolutely pounding at that moment. Like you say, it really did bring the danger of the, of horse racing, you know, to, you know, to the fall yeah. in that, but yeah. It's the uh, jockey that saved its life. Mm. He actually stopped everybody doing it. He, the guy had the gun out and he just stood near. Yeah, no, not happening until the, uh, the, the, they could um, go over the train. They could get there. 
I mean, just before I pass on to you, Neil, I think it's worth noting, and, and, and Phil said it about the music, that at the very end is a, a wonderful sing-along to Delilah, a song, of course, which the woke lot are currently trying to ban. People like Graham and yourself, Neil, would have that Fuck. off the... A bigger bun. Hang on, how how did we become woke? Yes, exactly. Well, compared to Jeff, oh, we are, I suppose. But Attila the Hun or Vlad the Impaler are woke compared to yes, Jeff. Yes, absolutely. Over to you, Neil. You can't beat a good British family film, can you? I remember the talk about Dream Alliance on the news. In 2010, he entered the Grand National but pulled up at the seventh fence. The film finishes on, after the win at the Welsh Grand National, which I think was a good move. Uh, as usual, the toff, Peter Davison's Lord Avery, is made to look foolish. The only bit that I thought was stupid. The only bit I thought was stupid. Jump racing is for everyone, and there are loads of these syndicates, and anyone can join in. Lord Avery, whoever he is, would more likely be at the flat racing anyway, Ascot, Epsom, etc. I know it makes the story more interesting, but that part is bollocks. <laughs> Norton's coin, for example, who won the Cheltenham Gold Cup in 1990 at 100 to 1, was owned and trained in Wales by Cyril Griffiths, a dairy farmer. That said, Dream Horse works. The setting, the Welsh valleys, the villagers chipping in their £10 a week, Sean Phillips really enjoying herself, the horse with a heart, the slices of luck along the way, the Manic Street preachers, fantastic. Tony Collette seems to be a master of the feel-good film movie. Muriel's Wedding About a Boy, Little Miss Sunshine, as well as a whole lot of serious films, obviously, and provides the lead and the heart of the movie. She's wonderful. Carl Johnson, who's played Kirby, was hilarious. <laughs> Previously in Hot Fuzz and a TV version, incidentally, of King Lear as the full alongside Anthony Hopkins Lear. Thoroughly enjoyable and a great story. So there we go. The excellent Dream Horse. Well worth catching in cinemas. Um, for our final main review of the month, let's go to another animal-themed film and also one highly anticipated by this team of reviewers, Peter Rabbit 2, <laughs> The Runaway. Are you the author? It's really the rabbit story. I just wrote it down. Look, Dad, it's Peter Rabbit. Oh, I hate that I'm the face of this. He's a little naughty. What? Are you Peter? That depends who's asking. Peter, stay out of trouble. Told you he has it in for me. He was talking to all of us. I'm talking to you, Peter. Specifically, stay out of trouble. 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 Oh. If that's who they think I am... Maybe I'd be better off without them. Oh, come on. The sequel to the award-winning Peter Rabbit. <laughs> award-winning. Oh, yeah. It won a number of awards in Australia for its excellent trailer. <laughs> Finds Peter and friends back for more adventures Warning, there are some spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen it and want to preserve the mystery of this film with its superior plot twists, I would suggest jumping forward ten minutes to the plot. All is well in the world of Peter Rabbit, Thomas, Domo Gleason, and B. Rose Byrne have married, and B has opened a local bookshop where her stories about Peter Rabbit and his friends sell well. Then B gets an offer to meet the publisher, Nigel Basil Jones, 
David Oyelolo, who sees big potential for a book series with Peter as the ultimate bad guy. Peter, voiced by James Gordon, is at the meeting and is downhearted by this turn of events. He wanders off into Gloucester, where he meets real villainy and has to make a decision about his future. Gloucester being portrayed as a city of crime, who'd have thought it? (laughs) (laughs) Darren, did this change in story direction work for you, or should it have been left as just one Peter Rabbit movie? Well, if you'd have asked me before actually seeing this film, I, I would have said that they should have left it with no Peter Rabbit movies because <laughs> I, I admit I never went to see the original because when I saw the trailers, I was just absolutely appalled that they modernised a lovely English gentle story as Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit and the slapstick humour, James Corden. I just was absolutely put off by it, so I never went to see it. And frankly, I went to the cinema to see this under due rest because because Jeff decided that we had to review it for it. So I went in there, <laughs> and I was and, so, and I was not happy. So you went wearing a dress. Uh, I, <laughs> why, why were you wearing a dress? It's my right. right. It's my identity. Oh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm be, be woke. Yeah, yeah. fascist. <laughs> So I'll shut up now. (laughs) So the first 10 minutes, I basically thought I was in for a slog because the humour wasn't clicking for me. It was corny. Uh, The whole scene at the the wedding, I was just getting annoyed. And I was actually considering basically just um, sneaking out and basically making up this review and pretending I'd seen it. But I decided (laughs) to stick it out. And there's one gag. That, that came up in this scene and it's with Rosa Byrne when she's speaking to a publisher and she talks and he asks her about what ideas she has for the future and she says that she has a vague idea for a 20 book series with over 100 characters in the multi-crossover storyline and this is obviously a, a reference to the, the Beatrix Potter books and this kind of warmed me to the film because I thought it was generally funny. And after that, he, um, he started to enjoy the film. He just started to be like, you know, one gag after another that was working. There were all these, like, not quite fourth wall breaking, but all these sort of, like, knowing little um, uh, references to, uh, you know, ru- ru- ruining a classic um, English story and making a really crash American film version and, and all this. And I found myself actually liking it. And there's also this um, uh, this, this ongoing um, storyline of David uh, Oyelowo having this like, manipulative manner about him, how the, the two of them, whenever they looked into his eyes, we just believed everything they say because we're so charmed by it. And, and I thought it was really funny. And then the story of Peter, you know, and this and him falling into this gang and basically being sort of like, you know, real despondent because he was seen as a villain. And the, the the old idea of this heist that they had to um to steal dried fruit from a um from a market, it kind of made a weird sort of sense. And I sort of was, you know, <laughs> it, it, but it, but it did. It, you know, the, the fact that animals wanted to basically just like you know get food, and the fact it was dried food, so they'd be able to sort of like store it more. It made a weird sort of sense. So I I, and I really started taking to it. And as the film got on, I actually found myself caring 
about the characters when we all got rounded up, you know, in, in prison as it was. I actually got nervous for them, and so for for the god of me, I thought, oh my god, I'm actually enjoying this film. I'm actually invested in Peter Rabbit bloody too, and I can't, I couldn't understand what was going on. And I, yeah, I liked it. I liked the two storylines, and I couldn't believe it. And even little gags like the one where uh, I think I think it was a cow or something. It mentioned a flashlight, and then um, that Peter Rabbit in James Corden's voice says, "And now for our English viewers, a torch." Just little things like that. Just like <laughs> I found myself really enjoying it, and so I've got to say, as a kids' film, I've not been entertained by a kids' film like this in ages, and I was completely won over. Biggest shock to me was I came out of this actually having enjoyed the movie. Thank you, Darren. The check's in the post. Um, <laughs> Phil. So, I mean, that was brilliant. I almost feel bad that I'm going to tell you that this is an awful film. <laughs> and carry on. I recall the original Peter Rabbit, and, and I've got an excuse to have to go and watch these films. I've got young kids. <laughs> so I remember, like, the original film was actually reasonably fun, albeit with a slightly irritating choice of leading James Corden. I found this to be a really uneventful mess, contrary to what Darren said. I I thought the two storylines were completely disparate and they didn't mesh together properly. Like I just felt that there were two things happening concurrently and they, they didn't tie together or feel that way. And I thought that all the jokes were quite scattershot and mostly missed. And what Darren was talking about, this really surreal meta quality to the jokes, I just found it really out of place. So it kind of takes swipes at the fact that the film's made by Americans and not in the spirit of the original source material. It makes a joke about the fact that James Corden's voice is really annoying, which is what I remember not liking about the first one. And then the bit that I thought was really super surreal is at the ending, it even took a swipe at the family-friendly moral that's in the film, which I just found really odd. And I just thought, what? That doesn't make much sense. Best of the jokes was the fox that decided that he wanted to keep fit. <laughs> okay, that was funny. And the cockerel from the first film, who's obsessed with the sun. And those jokes have literally nothing to do with what's happening in the film. They just pop up every now and then. And I thought that they worked the best. Even at 93 minutes, I found it really aimless and meandering. And I thought that the voice cast, because, you know, this has got Margot Robbie and Elizabeth Debicki in it, and they've added Lenny James. I just think that they're all wasted. Okay, let's go to the person who we know, because I picked this film, is going to dislike it, even if he liked it. Neil. Bullshit. More of the same tripe. The baddies in this one are trying to commercialise the whole naughty rabbit thing was a step too far. There are in-jokes, and there's basically writing my review for me. It's an incoherent mess. The first film was bearable. It's not good, but it was bearable. This one wasn't. I rolled my eyes so many times. And they ignored a great voice cast. At least Daisy Ridley escaped the torture. 
charmless and irritating Peter Rabbit, again James Corden, played as a smug, irritating know-it-all. In every way, it doubles down on the first film. There are bits I liked, of course. Understood the travelling to Gloucester, a short distance between the Lake District and Gloucester, 250 miles plus, went by so quickly as like just going to the next town. But then they mostly ignored the Taylor of Gloucester, another Beatrix Potter book. Gloucester looked nice, which it can do. Around the cathedral, maybe. There were funny bits, and that's it. I got bored quickly, and then I stayed bored. So there we go. Neil, like Matt Hancock, is entitled to an opinion. (laughs) Graham. I'm somewhere in the middle. I thought it was okay-ish. I mean, it rattled along, warm and fuzzy bits about the role of fatherhood, and James Corden's voice is still annoying, but now everybody's realised that and they've turned it into a self-deprecating running gag in the thing, which I thought was great fun. The two main characters still have good chemistry that that made the first one enjoyable. And all the voice acting is is top-notch. But the central heist component, I thought it was fun and engaging, provided a great vehicle for lots of slapstick comedy. It's aimed at children after all, and they love all that. The standout laugh moments for me, uh, I thought, were provided by the rooster and uh, Felix Deer. Uh, I particularly like the rooster having an existential crisis every morning. Uh, that's yeah, It was really good. Neither of which from the books. No. no I did think... That, Time's moved on, Neil. Yeah. Oh, and at the, at the very end, when the, uh, the sort of the human villain says, OK, let's get on with Winnie the Pooh, because we're going to destroy that as well. It's fun enough to keep the adults interested and crazy enough for the children. Yeah, it's. I won't be going to see the third one in this, no matter how much pressure Jeff applies. Let's see, eh? No, not uh, going we'll, to see it. We'll discuss that and when the it's time the comes. Death of narrative cinema. Death of narrative cinema. Is it okay? The the problem is, you know, you guys want to hold back to the past, you know. It, you have this rosy view of these Beatrix Potter tales. You are like Brexiteers. You're holding on to something that doesn't exist anymore. Time has moved on. Now, I would accept that this film has more in keeping with Home Alone than Beatrix Potter. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think Beatrix Potter would be charmed to know that James Corden is voicing Peter Rabbit. Right. She's spinning in her grave at the moment. <laughs> yeah. When she finishes, maybe she'll have a comment on it. And, but this goes beyond Home Alone in that it takes a radical departure from the original Home Alone to Home Alone 2. It's essentially the same film, but set in a city. In this, the comic battles of the first film is between Peter and McGregor. Now, that would have been contrived if that had happened again in the second film, very much like you know Home Alone 2 in New York. But nope, they put that to one side and think, how can we develop this? How can we make this more esoteric? Well, how they do it after having that little dream sequence at the beginning of the film that has a little battle between them is they turn it into a father-son relationship. And it's quite a moving one, you know, between a man and his rabbit. <laughs> and there's a scene where they sit down and, you know, one has lost his father. Well, both have lost their father, really, and how they come to terms with one another. And it's a powerful emotional scene. <laughs> and it's very believable because the way Donald Gleason plays it, it it's it just pulls at the heartstrings. Now, 
Those are not your heartstrings, Jeff. They're a bit lower down. <laughs> God. I can't Have you move. finished? Or may I continue my review? <laughs> now, one unfortunate byproduct of this theme is the Rose Byrne character I thought was almost sidelined, and her subplot is the most forgettable. Yeah, and that, considering this film has a huge amount of subplots, more subplots than a rabbit breeding session, to be quite honest. <laughs> so if one thing doesn't work, the next one coming along will be funny. Darren said it. He went in not expecting to like this, blaming me, and then coming out praising me. So, you know. Praising uh, the film. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, Peter Rabbit 2 is often laugh out loud funny. When? when the cockerel. Yeah. We've mentioned the fox. That's, that's the two things. No. The problem we've got is Graham and Neil, and I'm sad to say Phil has become a part of this as well. <laughs> Joined the they club. Are, they, are, they are essentially Cheltenham snobs. They look down their noses at Gloucester, which features prominently and wonderfully in this movie. And they look down at people from Gloucester like they do the Welsh. So for the discerning non-Cheltenham cinema goer, this is great fun. It's a contender for family film of the decade. Even with its shortcomings. <laughs> Hang on, Mitchell's versus the Machines was out like a couple of months ago. Yeah, exactly. this, this doesn't even come close. No. It's not as clever as this, though, is it? <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, thanks, guys, for your thoughts on another forgettable film. Peter Rabbit Two can be found Un- in forgettable. <laughs> can be found in cinemas everywhere. Unfortunately, let's go over to Darren's dash for some other recommendations. First film that I uh, actually went to a cinema to see, remember those, um, is Nobody, which is and finally, after all these months, I finally get to see an action movie with lots of violence and action. Uh, this one sees Bob and Odin Kirk as a seemingly average suburban family man with a painfully dull robbed. And after getting robbed one night where he basically does not exactly react in a manly fashion, he sees his shady secret past as a government agent catch up with him as he goes after the criminals, leading him to take out his frustrations violently on the gang of thugs who have been harassing passengers on the bus. Unfortunately, one of the thugs in question just happens to be the brother of a Russian gangster. OK, so this film comes across as a budget version of the John Wick movies with elaborate fight sequences and over-the-top action. However, the great thing about this film is it stays more on the old-fashioned exploitation vigilante movies. Odin Kirk is an absolute revelation in this film as an action star, which I honestly, when I first saw he was going to be with it, I didn't get the casting at all. But it works because he's someone who seems to be just an everyman who basically is just being like trampled on by the world, yet he's got this really violent past that's brewing. And it's incredibly satisfying and weirdly feel good because it gives you enough clues about his past but keeps his mystery intact. Christopher Lloyd does a small role and is an absolute riot. My one criticism about this film is that it has a really gloomy aesthetic that fits the film, but it really sort of 
could have done with just a little bit of variety in colours and from places to places. But I absolutely adored this movie. It was a lot of fun. Um, what's great about it is that you, through this character, you see that he's not trying to keep his past away from him. And so he wants this violence to happen. There's times when he basically is in a situation where he gives the villains uh, an out. When they don't take it, you can see him actually thinking, thank God I get to explore my violent side. The fight scenes has probably a lot more grit than the John Wick movies, which are very sort of stylized, very slick. This one is really bone crunching and, um, you know, people getting hit and busted open. This was a really fun action movie. I really recommend this one a lot. Phil, I think you've seen this, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so I saw this twice, actually, because the first time I saw it, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I wanted to love it because I think Bob Odenkirk is a, just brilliant. I mean, I love Better Call Saul. So I watched it again. So it's written by the same guy who did John Wick. So there's, it's not original in any way because it's kind of like an iteration of John Wick. I have to say, Bob Odenkirk just completely makes it work. He's really, really good. It is bone-crunchingly violent, as Darren said. And some of the best stuff is he really likes old sort of crooner-type music. And there's a lot of scenes with music that doesn't fit the scene, if you see what I mean. It's kind of like serene, nice music of like a crooner singing whilst ultra-violence is happening on screen. Yeah, I completely recommend it. If if you like um, action movies, you're going to like this. It's really good. Uh, I take it nobody else has seen it? Nope. No. Darren. Okay, so the next film is um, a Netflix movie called Oxygen. Darren Melanie Laurent, who is probably best known for English viewers as uh, for her role in Inglorious Bastards. And here she plays a woman who wakes up in a cryogenic unit, having absolutely no recollection of who she is, why she's there, only that she is trapped and that the, uh, the chamber is malfunctioning and it's running out of life support. Now, the chamber has a futuristic um, artificial intelligence that she's trying to basically get to help her get out of this uh, situation. She has to solve a number of problems to stay alive, but she's also at the same time trying to figure out who she is and why she's in this chamber. This was one of these films that was like a real delight. It was like a, a really surprising one as well. It's a very claustrophobic thriller. I get claustrophobia at times, and so for me, it got really, really tense when she's basically sort of trying to sort of conserve oxygen when she's trying to race against time and there's also some quite funny moments she uses the uh, communications to call the chamber's manufacturing customer service to try and help her and they're basically trying to track her down and find out where she's coming from but it's one of these things that the more help that she gets the more the mystery deepens so, so there's a bit where there's a twist where when she gives the serial number of a chamber turns out that the chamber's actually um, been registered as destroyed some time ago. So the more that she learns, the, the more confused she gets. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm not going to go into too much because a lot of the twists work really, really well. I think this is where Netflix potential for me is, is really lays and, and not sort of spending money and trying to compete with uh, blockbusters. But buying these small, little, interesting movies that probably would sort of fall through the cracks and just get shown in art houses, but something like this, just a really solid little film. This is, to me, the sort of films that I like from them. 
Okay. We'll go over to Gurley Swat Phil, who's watched everything <laughs> this month. Phil. So, yeah, uh, so I watched this because Darren um, really likes it. So I actually watched this yesterday. Um, and I agree with him. It's really good. What I knew of it is I thought it was, um, I don't know if any of you seen Ryan Reynolds' film um, in 2010 called Buried. Yeah, where I, did, the, I didn't like that. I thought it ran out of ideas. Yeah, so where that ran out of ideas, this absolutely doesn't. It, and they do a really great job of drip feeding extra information and extra puzzles and Melanie Laurent does a really good job of keeping you engaged because she is for 99% of the film the only person you know in shot aha or aya I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname unfortunately he creates a real feeling of claustrophobia and he does a lot of interesting things for the camera to stop you getting bored about the fact that she's just in this little tiny claustrophobic box for you Jeff Netflix by default, I think, plays this with the dubbed version, so you oh, can watch it. Right? I'll watch it yeah. Obviously, I turned the subtitles on because it was freaking me out that the, the her mouth and the words weren't syncing up. But yeah, it's really good. And the only thing I will say, and I think Darren's right, we should avoid plot points. But this is a um, a lockdown film, and I won't say any more than that. But it is a lockdown film. Being foreign language, you must have seen it, Neil. Nope. Nope. Huh? Okay. Interesting. Back to you, Dan. Okay, so the next film, which has uh, appeared both on Disney Plus and in cinemas at the same time, so you've got a choice, is uh, Cruella. Uh, now, this film seemed to upset a lot of people. Uh, for some people, for purists, they were upset that it messed with one, uh, 101 Dalmatians continuity. And then there's other people that got really upset because it was supposedly making you feel sympathetic to an animal abuser and a villain, etc., etc. I'm sure you all know aware of the story here. This is the origin of Cruella de Vil. And you basically see her start as being a troubled child and an orphan. And she schemes a way to survive on, on the streets. And she basically gets into the upper class fashion world where she gets a job with a uh, ruthless designer who's, been, who's uh, simply called the Baroness. So there's a very um, The Devil Wears Prada feel to this movie. The difference here is that um, Cruella and the Baroness end up going to war as rivals. This is where the film really struck a chord with me because this is one of the most beautiful looking films I have seen in ages. I'm not a fashion person by any stretch of the imagination, but the costumes on display here as uh, Cruella starts to become more and more uh, her character are absolutely amazing. All I will say is I have a pop figure problem as it is. If they actually make pop figures of the uh, of the costumes from Cruella, I'm buying them all because they're absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and it's, 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 more, it's more than just the fashion. It actually shows Cruella how she actually creates this character for her first and then starts to becoming more and more of her character. It's a gloriously fun movie. Lots of heists, lots of car chases, lots of schemings. I really, really thought this was a great movie. And there's a real punk rock versus uh, the um, upper-class establishment film about this. And it gets very dark in places. You know, that there are characters that do awful things to each other. There is some references to murder. It's quite surprising that Disney would lend this to their property. But I think, in a way, it was really, really daring of them to do this. And I've got to say that if 
Disney are going to basically mine their back catalogue. I would rather they do something interesting with this, even if it's basically sort of reworking their old stuff and sort of going in a completely different direction. I would rather them do this and take risks and chances. I think I think this was an absolute triumph and I really enjoyed it. I've actually seen this one. I do agree with you. I think they took a 200 million price tag of this film, unleashed the two Emmas, both brilliant in their own ways. And for a 12A, it is, I did think it was, it was dark. It could have been darker. And I think there's a sequence in it where you think she's killed these Dalmatians and turned him into a coat. And actually she should have done. Oh. And the reason, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. Hear me out now. The, the reason that she should have done is it, you know, it would show the continuation of that character in a way that Disney couldn't do it. You know, it, it is ultimately a Disney film and there, there's no way they would have gone along with it. Had they gone along with it, this would have almost been a female Joker movie. You look at the direction, the direction's almost schizophrenic. It darts and dives and jumps all over the place. Choice of songs on the soundtrack is amazing. We talk very much about the, you know, the Joker with that scene going down the stairs. Well, in this, they just crash songs against one another. You have the clash playing on the soundtrack two minutes later you have a song by ken dodd playing on the soundtrack and all of this was going on it's totally schizophrenic it matches the character and i appreciate that disney couldn't go that dark but as a film that captures that punk rock era the whole punk sensibility it is amazing it is for me one of the films of the year it's tremendous phil you've seen it as well yeah i I agree with you i agree with darren and this is a brilliant film i loved it so much and it definitely should have been swapped out with peter rabbit in in our review section because guess what my kids also loved this film they loved the dogs they thought it was amazing they laughed a lot the soundtrack's amazing the um, costumes are amazing the two emmas are just brilliant but also um joel fry and paul Walterhauser as jasper and horace were also really really good it's just yeah. it's just brilliant. It's hands down the best Disney live action film. You know, in this whole sort of sequence of live action films that they've made over the last few years, this is easily the best of all of them. Yeah. Um, I loved it. Interesting. Yeah. And we go from admiring so much to Darren talking about Ben Wheatley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so the last film is one I've been looking forward to for ages because I'm a, it's called In the Earth. I saw this in the cinema and I'm a really big Ben Wheatley fan. I absolutely loved Sightseers. I loved High Rise. Absolutely thought Free Fire was one of my favourite films of that, of that year. I think he is a, a really good director and he's got some really interesting and daring stuff. In this one, it goes back to being really dark and grim like he did in Kill List, which was a, a, a phenomenally dark movie. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it was the uh, the foreboding and the tension. And this is a simple story about a young scientist who arrives at an outpost in a uh, in a forest, and he's going to be escorted by a park ranger on a two day hike to join one of his colleagues who's conducting experiments in the wilderness, developing a new strain of crops. Now, naturally, in all these films, things start getting spooky really quick. They discover remains of a of a family camp where the family's abandoned and it's all missing. And they soon be, becomes clear that they get attacked one night and it's pretty clear that they're being stalked and that they are not alone in these woods. 
Now, what's more interesting about this film is it's actually a COVID movie. It's set against a backdrop of a worldwide virus that is causing people to take COVID-like precautions. Except this one seems even more serious. There's hints that the entire world is basically falling apart because of this. And the precautions that are being taken, which are the general COVID precautions of wearing a mask, is distancing. The characters in this are taking both to extreme. And it really creates a real sense of paranoia throughout the film and the problems that they're living under. And this carries on until into the movie and when what stutter starts to happen in the woods starts to happen can't really put into enough words to describe what this film was like. It's absolutely terrifying in places, it's tense, it's bizarre, there is lots of psychedelic imagery and it's at times it is very, very gory. And it's got this sort of strange tone of like one of the old-fashioned Hammer movies but with a bit of a more of a modern setting. You don't get to relax at all during this film. In fact, at the start, there is actually a disclaimer warning that there is flashing images that may affect people with who are photosensitive. It's a very weird film, but oddly, it's also extremely easy to follow. Um, you don't come out of this film thinking, I have no idea what that was about, because everything there is to interpret this film is there. You know, it actually makes the um, the woods a character in this film. It's surreal, but you get what is going on all the time. There's a few elements of Blair which project about this film, The Wicker Man. There's even a, a touch of The Heart of Darkness, but it feels really, really fresh and original. And then it's in its own film, even though it's got all these tropes of being lost in the woods and that sort of thing. It's an absolutely mind-blowing film, and I absolutely loved it. I didn't know what to expect. But it was unlike anything I've seen for a long time. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Phil, you've seen this one as well. Yeah, so this is interesting for me, actually, because I'm not a fan of Ben Wheatley films. And I feel, again, I think I said this in the last review show, um, if you want to revoke my film Twitter card, then I get it, because you know, everyone loves him. I don't, Phil. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, so I think Sightseers was okay, um, Kill List was just grim, and I really didn't like it. Um, Potential and, shite. And high, high Rise, I really struggled with. I do like Free Fire. I agree yes. with Darren there. That's a lot of fun. And I thought that Rebecca um, remake that he did was interesting, and I kind of compared that with, with the original. So I went into this a little unsure because I've I'm, I'm never totally got on with his films, but easily his best film. Certainly I've, I've not seen all of his films, but this is easily the best one I've seen. I did really like it, and I would watch it again. And there were a few things that kind of came to my mind when I was watching because so one – the whole photosensitive thing, oh my lord, like don't take that like not seriously. If you have any issues with photosensitivity, do not watch this film unless you want to have like 999 on speed dial or something because you will have an epileptic fit. Like I actually could have done with a little less of that because I, yeah. I left the cinema with a bit of a headache. <laughs> so that's one thing I'd say. I agree with that because I've not got any issues that way. And there were a few times when I had to turn my head from the screen because it was just getting that little bit too much. The other thing I was thinking is I knew, I know that Jeff doesn't like Ben Wheatley films, but I also know that Jeff really likes political um, films. And I thought that this would really, uh, I'm intrigued as to whether you like it, Jeff, because the story and the plot 
Um, and and I, I don't know whether you, I don't know, you can cut this for spoilers if you like, so we can skip over this bit. But I saw this as a discussion on our post-truth world as a, as a result of sort of COVID and what's happened over the last sort of four to eight years, because you've got a superstitious element um, with no kind of backing or, or sort of facts behind it. And you've got a scientific element. And then you've got somebody in the middle who's listening to both of those people and trying to make a decision about what he thinks is true or not true. And that's how I saw the film. And, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but that's kind of how I saw it. Um, or equally, you just take it as a really scary Blair Witch type movie in the woods. It really um, actually spun me for a loop because... I wasn't sure what to expect. I've never been a huge fan of Ben Wheatley films, but I really liked this, and I and I am intrigued what you will think, Jeff. I don't think it's scary in terms of because I'm interested in what um, Graham and Neil would think, and I know that you don't like big sort of overblown horror movies, and that this isn't that. I think you'd be okay because this mm. is about like a dread, a sense of dread that builds. It's not like you know full of jump scares and scary monsters and all that sort of stuff. So I think you should give it a go. I I mean, I like, I I like Ben Wheatley. I I loved high rise. I mean, really you've seen a field in England then, have you? Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed, enjoyed high rise. Tear your eyes out at the end of it. I mean, it was based on JG Ballard, so it's got to be good. And I'd certainly give it this. I'm intrigued. It's going on the list. I'm definitely intrigued. To, to be honest, what Phil has said about Ben Wheatley actually overlaps with my views on him. So uh, I am now very much intrigued to watch this. That completes my dash for the month. Oh, so guys, out of all the films you've reviewed, which would you rate as your film of the month? The Father. Graham? Uh, a Quiet Place Part 2. Jeff? Uh, Dream Horse. If this doesn't touch you, you've no soul. Phil? So I, what I want to say is I thought this was an amazing month. There's loads of really, really oh, good yeah. films. I think Peter Rabbit is the exception. Um, <laughs> but with kudos to In the Earth and Cruella, I'm going to give it to A Quiet Place Part 2. And you, Darren? And for me, I'm going to go with Dream Horse. Wow. It's a tie this month. Yeah, Dream Horse yeah. and Quiet Place Part 2. I lost. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap. And another at the flicks is in the can. With all the Welsh content this month, I bet everyone will be checking their heritage. And I had to explain to Neil that just because his dad had a leak in his condom, that doesn't make him Welsh. (laughs) Sorry, I switched my hearing aid off. Uh, Didn't catch that. I, for one, will be definitely checking my heritage. Me too, but only to prove I'm not related to Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) And to everyone else, thanks for listening and goodbye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, at theflix.uk and if possible please remember to rate and review at the flicks wherever you get your podcasts you can contact the team on twitter or by email our contact details are also on our website at theflix.uk thanks for listening <laughs>